This is episode number 13 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you've been keeping up with the blog, you'll know that lately I've been all about the Go programming language. Coming from PHP, Java, and Node.js, the Go programming language made a lot of sense because of all of the performance that it brings to the table and how nice of a language it is to work with overall. With me today, I have special guest Matt Holt, who is huge in the Go programming language community. You may have even seen some of his work. He's most famous for his work on the Caddy web server, which we're, we're going to talk a little bit about during this particular episode. With that said, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm with Matt Holt, and we're going to be talking about the Go programming language and how it compares to other areas of modern development, whether that be web or other. Uh, but before we get into that, let's, I want to give Matt a chance to introduce himself. So how are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Nick. Doing good. <clears throat> um, so you want an introduction? Um... I'm currently working on my master's degree in computer science at Brigham Young University, and I'm studying deep neural networks. But I also am like 50-50 torn on like neural networks are awesome, and also computer security is awesome. So I do computer security stuff uh, kind of as my hobby right now or on the side of school, um, which is where I guess the, the Caddy web server that I wrote kind of got me into that. Um, a little bit unexpectedly. Um, so anyway, that's written in Go, and I got into Go about three, well, it's 2017, four and a half years ago now. And so, um, and that was for my old job. We rewrote our entire C-sharp stack in Go, uh, which is awesome, actually. So I've been doing that for a while, and just really looking forward to where things go in the next couple of years. So I want to get into uh, more on the caddy stuff as well as the rewrite that you did. Uh, but before that, I want to really know what is the Go programming language? And do do people generally refer to it as Go or Golang? So it's called the Go programming language. And Golang is, a, is like a cute hashtag. <clears throat> but um, don't use Golang in like conversation. I think you'll kind of alienate some... <laughs> Uh, more experienced Go programmers, uh, it's just just call it Go. Um, but if you're like tagging something on the web, you can use GoLang, uh, like a hashtag. But I think beyond that, just Go is a good name for it. Interesting. So, so what exactly is Go then? So Go is a, is a language that uh, came out of Google in about 2009. Is when they kind of released uh, their work on it. And uh, it's written by engineers that you may know from some other really um, important technologies like Unix and Plan 9 and UTF-8 and Memcache. Uh, these are engineers like Rob Pike and uh, Ken Thompson and um, uh, Brad Fitzpatrick and, and several others. Uh, Adam, Lang <coughs> Excuse me. Adam Langley does a lot of security and crypto stuff. But anyway, it was a, it's a language that was written for... Um, mostly for like server applications, um, but it's comparable in performance to C, and it's really good for high concurrency programming and for anything dealing with the network, 
or for anything, um, gosh, I mean, anything I used to, I used to write PHP for like eight, 10 years and I switched to Go because of various advantages that we can get into. Uh, and I've never looked back at PHP. So it was like a complete replacement for all my PHP and Node and other kind of work that I did, even C. Honestly, I don't write C unless I like really have to. Um, like really have to be on the metal, you know? So why would you switch from PHP uh, in the first place to what, what was so enticing about Go at the time? So I was having a hard time. This is, this is how I switched to Go, I guess, at, at work, um, my old job. Um, I had a hard time with PHP's execution model. So the interpreted language part wasn't really the problem, but I think maintaining state between requests or doing things concurrently during an HTTP request uh, that needed lots of processing. So I worked with a company that processed lots of address data, I guess, is a good way to describe it. And um, we needed to do lots of, uh, oh man, <clears throat> uh, we, we were writing an API that involved lots of like performance heavy requests and um, we needed to keep a lot of data in memory. So we needed, I don't know, uh, PHP wasn't able to fit everything into memory. Also, keeping things in memory between requests with PHP is um, not, like, that's not how, that's not what you do with PHP. You use, like, a database or something. Um, so Go is awesome because, uh, for that problem, because it comes with, like, the production-ready HTTP server with just a few lines. Um, and anyway, it was able to meet our needs a lot better for writing this API. So what, what kind of learning curve would you say? Uh, because I, like you, I also started with PHP. I think a lot of developers um, who are probably older than 20 years old have probably started with that. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what kind of learning curve did it take to, to switch languages? Because Go, like you said, is, is very similar to C, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was surprised. I was able to pick up Go in less than a month. Uh, and I was fluent with it after just a few months. Uh, it's a very small language. Uh, you can take the Go tour, tour.golang.org, and you'll probably be done with it if you spend, you know, a few hours a day on it. You could be done with it in about a week and pretty much understand the basics of the language. Um, there's not a whole lot of, like, data structures. There's only really two, like, data structures that you'll use. Um there's only a handful of keywords. The syntax is very familiar to any C or uh, PHP programmer, I suppose. And um, I think the language being tiny is one of its primary advantages. So being that it's, it's sort of similar to C or C++, what do you... So what's deterred me from those two languages is um, dealing with pointers and reference data. Um, because mm -hmm. it, it can be a tough thing to grasp. Um, do you still have that in Go, or is it easier? Or um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so what? Uh, so what's what's the difficult thing to you about pointers or references? Just uh, really re uh, remembering 
um, what what each of them means, like when you use an asterisk or or the ampersand symbol, um, and then actually either writing to that data or 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 reading from it. Are you are you reading from a, a reference of that or a pointer or just the whole concept is is a little mm. rough. I see. Yeah. So so Go does have pointers and it does have references, um, although it treats them. Uh, they're much easier to use in Go, I think. It, you do still have to understand that pointers point to a memory location, that they are a value, but that value happens to be a memory address, and that's how the language interprets it. Um, but Go takes care of all the garbage collection for you, so no more malloc, no more free. Um, you just declare a variable, and you can declare it as a pointer, um, by using the asterisk or the ampersand. Um, and Go will take care of the memory management. The, there is a really significant advantage, though, to, to being able to have that much control over how your memory is managed. Uh, in Java, everything is a pointer, as far as I understand. And um, in Go, that's not the case. You have values, like variables are values. And when you pass them into a function, the value gets copied, and that's kind of the default. But if you declare a pointer, the value is not copied, um, and that's really significant for certain data structures and certain applications that you need to be high performance or you need to reduce um, um, allocations. So Go's garbage collector is actually really, like, really good now. Um, but it, it, especially in the early days of Go, if you were really worried about, you know, a few milliseconds of kind of stop the world garbage collection and you couldn't have that performance hit, you needed really, especially then, you needed really good control over um, what was a pointer and what was a value, what was being copied, what was being allocated and deallocated. <clears throat> Nowadays, it's a little bit less of a concern because Go doesn't stop the world, uh, not for more than a few microseconds at most, or I, I don't know, they have it ridiculously fast now. But... Um, the uh, but the, I don't know. There's still like really important advantages. Also, um, once you learn about how Go works as far as its type system and its methods, and then how um, types can have and methods can have receivers. Uh, if the rec if the methods modify the type that they're um, receiving then you need to use a pointer to that type because otherwise the value gets copied in uh, rather than pointed to. Anyway, that's a little more like into the language, but there are little things like that. Yeah, you do need to be pay attention to. There are still the possibility of nil pointers. So like that's bad if you try and dereference a nil pointer. Um, so you have to write correct code, but still I find that my Go programs are way more stable than any C program I've ever written, for sure. And any, honestly, any Java program as well, um, for various reasons. So I wouldn't let the pointers and the references like scare you. You don't have to use them, but if you find a performance or a correctness issue, you may need to use uh, a pointer. So would you, you know? say that this uh, kind of enforces uh, better coding? Yeah, yeah, it does, because... Um, honestly, like it, it can be a little tricky, but programmers, I think we have to know how memory works and at least at a basic level. And, um, and I think it, the way that Go is designed causes you to focus on, on the, 
on the data um, that your program is processing and and the the operations that are performed on it, and you don't have to worry as much about um, yeah about like exceptions, for example, and error handling. That that's a whole great different topic. But um, Go makes that just kind of like it forces you to deal with it in a good way. Sure, no, that that makes sense. So in a lot of languages, I'm going to point one out in particular. So uh, the JavaScript type languages like Node. Uh, when you're developing with those languages, you have to deal with what people often refer to as callback hell or mm-hmm. a million levels of, of indentation uh, that makes your code very sloppy and hard to maintain. Um, it's not like this for all programming languages. That's just uh, one of a few examples. Uh, how does this? How does Go handle this? How do you when you're writing your code? Um, do you have to worry about some, uh, things like this? Uh, no. Um, and that's that's one of the, the great advantages of Go. So with Node, you have a single-threaded application, more or less. All of your JavaScript, as far as I know, um, I haven't dabbled in Node in a year or two, but um, is it the case that all your JavaScript runs in a single thread? Is that right? Sure. Yeah. So so you don't, which is kind of nice in some ways, right? Because you don't have to deal with synchronization or locking. Um, but at the same time, you kind of do. <laughs> I've um, So I've written... I've written JavaScript uh, applications before for the browser, especially. Um, some of them were very high performing. Um, and you can actually look at some of my JavaScript stuff on GitHub. Um, yeah, I've written a high performance CSV parser. There, there's such a thing, believe it or not. And um, it, um, so when you deal with asynchronous operations in JavaScript, you have this callback hell, so to speak, because um, the the runtime will be the one taking care of the threads and doing network requests in a separate thread. And then when that's finished, it will uh, it will put your main thread on hold, call your callback, and then you have to um, you have to handle that. And so it's like your your main JavaScript thread is. It's single-threaded technically, and it's memory-safe, and you don't have to worry about race conditions. But at the same time, you still need to kind of synchronize some stuff because you can't do certain things until a callback finishes. Um, and honestly, it's a mess. Like <laughs> it's a little rough for that kind of stuff. Uh, Go doesn't adopt this model. Go is natively um, concurrent in the sense that. You manage your own concurrency, but Go makes it super easy, which is really, this is a beautiful thing about the language, is you can just say, like, Go, and then a function name, or a function call, and that function will run in a separate, what's called a Go routine. A Go routine is a lightweight thread. Um, you can think of it like this. A Go routine may or may not execute in, a, in the same or a different system thread. Uh, which have a little more weight to them, but they're still, you know, pretty light. Uh, and the Go scheduler is really good. It really understands Go code. And so you can, ha- it's not uncommon for a Go application, uh, especially server applications or pipeline things that are doing lots of processing, to spawn millions of Go routines. They are super lightweight. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me. So. Um, so with Go, you have really easy concurrency. You don't have all these like levels of indentation. In fact, if you have more than like two or three, 
or especially four, <laughs> again, depending on how many maybe loops you have or select statements you have, um, you're probably not writing really good code. So um, it allows you to keep your applications really easy to read. Um, you can you can do the synchronization yourself, um, and it, Go has really good facilities for that. So you mentioned that any given Go application could have millions of Go routines. Um, is this something that should be uh, taken more seriously, uh, considering different hardware, or is it just that lightweight? Um, it depends how busy the Go routines are, but it's really that lightweight. Um, Go routines are more of a matter of memory than they are of processor. Uh, again, depending on how busy they are. But uh, so, for example, Go Go will autom- automatically use all the CPU cores on the machine. Um, so you get parallelism, and then it will kind of divvy up the Go routines on the different CPUs as the scheduler sees uh, is best. And so you don't have to worry about any of that. If you have four CPUs and you have four Go routines and they're all busy, they will probably all be scheduled on different CPUs. If you have a million Go routines and four CPUs, then you do have... uh, really lightweight context switching that goes on. Um, but again, the way the Go scheduler does it is is pretty brilliant. Um, and it's actually kind of funny. I don't know if you use Linux, and if you ever open the process monitor or the system monitor, and you look at like the, the CPU graph and little lines that go up and down. Are you talking about top, or are you talking about something else? Um, like the, oh, the one I guess built into like Unity or... Um, I don't know, like the desktop one. Oh, all right. I don't actually know much about unit or Linux on the desktop, but but yeah, if you open in the system monitor and you see like the little graphical charts and they're showing you mo- uh, memory and CPU and they have like the squiggly lines, um, it's kind of funny because if you look at like a multi-threaded Python program, so I have a at, at work right now I have a sixteen core machine, um, and if you look at the CPU um, chart all the lines are really, like, it's a squiggly mess, basically. It's like a, it's it's really ugly looking. If you look at a multi-threaded, highly concurrent uh, Go program on that same computer, uh, all 16 of the squiggly lines will be basically moving in parallel with each other, um, up and down, and it's like a really... It's a beautiful, I don't know, it's a really be- beautiful visualization of how uh, the Go scheduler works. But yeah, like Go, um, the concurrency in Go is is really a thing. And if you're if you're kind of struggling with with that in Node, I mean, maybe there is a better tool for the job. Yeah, no, no, no that that makes that makes sense. Um, so uh, we've mentioned Java, we've mentioned a few languages here, um, all of which uh, are cross-platform. You could run them on Linux, Windows, etc. Um, where does Go fall into this uh, category? So those languages that we mentioned, you can run on any platform as long as you have their runtime installed. So if you have the Java runtime installed, you can run Java applications anywhere. You can run Python anywhere as long as Python is installed. Um, you can run Node applications anywhere as long as Node is installed. Uh, C-sharp applications, well, I don't know. I guess that all changed up recently too. But <laughs> the point is, uh, with, with a Go application, you don't need anything installed on the target machine. Um, Go binaries cross platform; they compile cross platform, so you can 
like quite literally in your bash terminal, you can just type go OS equals, uh, you could say Windows space go build, and boom, your binary is compiled natively for Windows. And that binary contains, it's, it's completely uh, self-contained. And so um, you can just take it and copy it to a Windows machine and just run it. And you don't need any dependencies uh, on that machine uh, just in general to run that Go binary. The binary includes the Go runtime, which is a few megabytes. So people are a little surprised when they compile a three-line Hello World Go program and it ends up being like two megabytes. Well, I mean, most <laughs> Go programs that short aren't useful anyway. But um, but like it's not uncommon for most Go programs to average between two and, I don't know, eight to 10 megabytes for really larger ones. I think Caddy is on the order of like 14 if you have some plugins installed. Anyway, um, but binary size isn't actually a big deal. And it cross-platform, or it compiles cross-platform just really beautifully. So no runtimes needed, and you can do the cross-compilation um, just on any machine, pretty much, so, for any platform. So you mentioned um, how everything gets compiled into the single binary. Um, when you, I think when you're working with C, C++, and you're compiling for, say, Windows, uh, there's DLLs or, or Linux, there's SO files. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saying that... Uh, are you able to have external dependencies like that in Go? Let's let's put it that way. <clears throat> Are you able to? I mean, I don't know why you would, but but maybe there's a scenario where you want to have a shared dependency of some sort on uh, some other part of the operating system. Is that even a thing? Uh, so, um, no. I mean, <laughs> all right. You don't usually. I mean, in my experience, you don't want that. Sure. Um, shared dependencies. Uh, are problematic for a number of reasons, um, but they also can be useful, and people want it enough that with Go 1.8, um, the, the the Go is released kind of an experimental plugin system where you can compile a Go package as like a plugin, and it it basically works like an SO file, um, and then your Go programs can be written in a way that load a plugin, excuse me. But that plugin has to be written and compiled in the same version of Go as the main program. And so you still have these version compatibility like issues. I honestly I don't like the whole dynamic linking thing. I think static binaries are like really great for deployment and reliability. And I agree with you on that one. Definitely. But yeah, like if you if you if you deploy it, if you compile a Go program on, I don't know, on like a Mac, and you compile it with CGO enabled equals zero, then um, so if you disable something called CGO, it uh, the the binary should be completely self-contained. In other words, you can deploy this to a Linux box that you don't even have libc on, and it sh- will still run. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, you keep mentioning Caddy, which is your your personal project that is pretty amazing. I I use it a few times before, um, and I have it. I have plans to use it in future projects. Can you explain what this is? Yeah. So um, so Caddy's a web server that I wrote. Uh, it, it started in 2014 to kind of scratch my own itch. I was really sick of setting up Apache or Nginx every time I wanted to work on a website and. 
Um, I just didn't, I don't know. They weren't a really good fit. They didn't feel like, I felt like I was make. I was using a tool that was really designed for something else or wasn't, I don't know. It was kind of hard to use. So I wrote my own and ended up calling it caddy. And the goal here, uh, at least on day one, was really easy setup, no brainer. You just CD into the the web uh, into your website's folder, and then you just run the the application, and it just serves it. Um, since then, Caddy's grown quite a bit, in a good way. Like it has many features that make it a very viable candidate for production web server, and that's what I use in production now as well too. So. Um... A lot of I've seen a lot of people question on the web whether or not it's ready for production versus Nginx and Apache. Uh, would you say that um, there's not a need for that kind of concern? Or I think it depends what you're doing. Um, Nginx, well, uh, there are very few reasons that Apache is, I think, the right tool for the job or the best tool for the job anymore. Maybe on like shared hosts, you know, like cPanel or some other thing like that. Um, but it depends what you're doing, right? So if you have a super, if you need a very high-performing, highly customizable reverse proxy, and when I'm talking about high-performing, I'm not talking about like you think you need high performance, but I mean you are actually serving hundreds of thousands of requests every minute, I mean, on a single machine, in which case, yeah, maybe a, uh, Nginx is, a, a, like Nginx is first and foremost a reverse proxy, and it's good at what it does. Um, but if you, I mean, if your if your performance needs are more on the, on the scale of like thousands of requests, even per second, then like, which honestly I think is most people, <laughs> we are not all like popular enough to be serving tens or hundreds of thousands of requests per second or minute. Um, I think then caddy is really, can be a really good fit for you. Um, People are really concerned about its age. Oh, it's so new. Yes, it, it's new. And yes, it has bugs, but so does every software. And we're working on it. But um, I mean, people people are using Docker like crazy. Docker's written in, in Go, and it's new. And I don't see that holding people back. So I mean, I say try Caddy out, at least in development. It's a great development web server for sure. But also try it out in production. Um, it's the only web server that uses HTTPS by default, and it will manage your certificates for you. You don't even have to think about it. That's something that only works in production, by the way, because it needs to work with a certificate authority that can reach your machine. Um, and so... I say try it in development and then put it out in production for a little bit and see what you think. I think you won't be disappointed. Yeah, that sounds fair enough. And I definitely want to maybe revisit the whole um, Nginx, Apache, Caddy thing in a, in a future dedicated uh, podcast episode on the topic of, of servers. Um, but let's let's try to steer away from that right now um, and wrap this episode up with just a few more questions. Um, so what are some of the best ways that people can get started, uh, with Go development? I would say go to the Go website, golang.org and start by reading the, um, they have like documents there and they'll show you how to write Go code and how to get it installed. Um, you'll just set up Go, um, on your computer, which will make a Go path in your home folder. Uh, and then 
you just uh, write it. Any, and anyway, you can try the Go Tour as well. Uh, tour.golang.org I think is a really good start. Um, and the next time you would jump to Node or PHP or Python for a project, for example, try uh, try writing it in Go and see how it goes. So uh, when, when people try to write it in Go, should they really invest <clears throat> themselves in it? Should they go all in without um, trying to keep PHP or these other languages as a fallback? Or um, does it not matter? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it depends what you're doing exactly. But you won't, um, pro especially if you're replacing something like PHP or uh, Node, I don't think you'll get to a point in your Go program, oh, man, I really wish... <laughs> I really wish I was writing this in Node right now. Um, in general, that won't be the case. I'd say, yeah, give it a try. Otherwise, I don't know. You won't be able to benefit from it. Is there any other uh, last-minute kind of words of wisdom that you'd like to give the listeners, like um, maybe uh, common questions that you receive or things that you've seen that uh, maybe aren't right or could be done better? Anything you want to leave the listeners with? About the Go language? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, so a lot of people complain that it there's it's a little bit um, tedious to do certain things. For example, there's not like a generic max function in Go. You have to write a function called max, and you have to take two arguments, and you have to write an if statement. If one is less than the other, you know, return this or whatever. But honestly, um, so Go doesn't have generics. Go... Um, doesn't, in my opinion, really need them. I have, I mean, I haven't found a need for them. Anyway, people will find reasons to complain about Go. It's not a perfect language. This is true, but honestly, like the the way of thinking about programming in Go is a little different, um, and I think you'll uh, you'll adjust to it just fine. Though, even if you do have to write a few more lines of code, they'll be readable. They'll be stable, um, and you know, just. Just take it. Just take it for what it's worth. Like it's it's a good language. It has a lot of, of good things going for it. So awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day, uh, Matt, to be on this podcast episode. And I definitely want to have you back again to talk about uh, servers in the future. Oh yeah, anytime. It'd be fun. That was some very useful information from Matt, who is a huge advocate of the Go programming language. Like I've previously mentioned, I started out with PHP. Then I started learning Java and recently switched to Node.js. Well, lately I've actually been using a lot of Go uh, for, for many of the reasons that Matt had described in this particular episode. So I, I personally find it to be a really nice language to work with, and I think that it's going to have a very strong future ahead of it. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you went into iTunes or Google Play or wherever you downloaded it from and left it a five-star rating and a review saying something nice about it. Uh, that would be great because then future listeners will get an idea on what to expect from this episode or the podcast in general. If you want to follow me and the content that I produce, I definitely recommend that you follow the polyglotdeveloper.com, which is the blog that goes with this podcast, as well as subscribe to the email newsletter of the blog where I send out emails probably about once a month uh, with useful information. You can also follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is nraboy, so my first initial and then my last name, N-R-A-B-O-Y. Um, and reach out to me on Twitter. I, I am very communicative. I will respond to you if you send me a tweet. Uh, and it's a great way to have a conversation with uh, other developers. And that concludes episode number 13.